We are starting, though, with the announcement made earlier today, an update from several levels of government when it comes to child care and affordability. And at the federal level, when we decided in budget 2021, yeah, thanks, budget 2021, that we were going to make a historic transformative investment of $30 billion in early learning and child care, BC was the first province to see that vision, to understand what those opportunities could mean for families across this province, and was the first province to sign on. That was the federal minister, Karina Gould. We were uh, taking a listen to that news conference. BC families with children in licensed care that from kindergarten and younger will see their child care fees drop. And the numbers put forward during that news conference were by up to $550 a month starting in December. We also heard from BC's education minister saying the fee reductions will bring the average daily cost of child care to $21 by the end of the year down from about $53 before the start of the child care initiatives that started in 2018. We want to talk more about this and joining us to do that is Alison Merton, Director of the Early Years Department at Collingwood Neighbourhood House. Alison, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me today. Uh, Where does this put us then as far as bringing down those fees and also opening up more child care spaces, do you think? Well, I think this is great news for families, Um, you know, to hear that they're going to have savings of up to $550 a month is just spectacular for them. Um, And we're very pleased to see that the province is keeping up the momentum for the full implementation of $10 a day childcare for all families. This is a this is a big step towards that. Um, And we understood that, you know, there was a process to it. um, But I think it's great news. Uh, Does it get us closer to that, though? I know the numbers uh, that were put out today was uh, a lot of the numbers were the hopes that it's going to double the amount of spaces or expand the number of spaces that are $10 a day uh, spaces. Uh, Where are we with that, though, as far as uh, actually having those spaces? It is a process, um, you know, and like I said, we knew we had to be patient as we'd be able to bin, um, build, you know, this kind of uh, sustainable system. Um, I think when it comes to spaces, you know, not only is it about, you know, the funding, um, you know, for that, it also is um, about having educators to build those spaces with, um, you know, as a provider, um, it is you know, it's a constant struggle dealing with recruitment and retention. And, you know, once we have further improvements to the, you know, to the wage grid um, for ECE educators, I think that would also, um, you know, propel us towards opening more spaces for families. Uh, The government was talking about the fact that they have been opening or that more spaces have been opening up and touting that. But do we have an idea or do we know uh, how many spaces have closed in the past couple of years? Um, I, I don't anticipate that there would have been a lot of closures. I mean, certainly they are, um, there are more spaces. And we just had our, um, you know, round of applications where um, providers could apply for, you know, to be a 10-a-day childcare BC site. Um, you know, so there are still spaces opening for that. But, but what I'm not hearing in the sector is lots of closures of those spaces. 
Right. Okay. What about the um, the difference then between, say, a program like yours with the neighborhood house and private operators of, of daycare and of childcare programs? Because it does seem like there's a bit of a disconnect, or at least there, there have been some concerns raised, especially by private operators of daycares uh, about this funding model and about how this is being rolled out. Uh, have you heard those concerns? Yes, we are hearing those as well, and it's a, a very... Um you know, a, an issue that has a lot of tension behind it. I think, you know, what we're all striving for is for um, inclusive, affordable childcare for families. Um, and just the way that the structures are built differently, you know, in in those private and not-for-profit centres is, is difficult to, to do that right across the board. Right, because I understand too, and the, and it's a different funding model, isn't it, for something uh, like like your type of, of childcare facility or the bigger childcare facilities? I know the the Y MCA was at the announcement. I think it was one of their facilities that was the the host site of the announcement today. Uh, it is a different funding model for for that uh, compared to private uh, settings, and I think that's maybe where some of the concern comes that we might see some of those smaller operations close. That, yeah, that is a concern, and they are providing, you know, valuable service to families. Um, but I think, you know, as, as we look to build a quality system and affordable, um, you know, there's a lot of aspects that have to be taken into consideration as to how, how to build a public system if, if, if you've got private operators. Right. And does it make sense then? I know that the province has gone the route and other provinces as well that are going along or, or that have signed on to this and that are, are working towards getting that promise of $10 a day childcare. I mean, there are still some concerns or at least questions about $10 for everybody, that it's not something that's focused on people who perhaps are in a lower income bracket, who are perhaps more in need of $10 a day daycare, but instead it's for everybody across the board. Yeah, yeah, and that's part of having an uh, inclusive system. But what we, you know, the the supports available to families who, you know, uh, are lower income is, you know, and we tell all our families this, apply for the affordable childcare benefit, which used to be the subsidy program. Apply for that, you know, and have that applied to your fees also. So there's that system in place as well for those families. Right, but then the, the the issue would be or could be people are looking at this and absolutely supporting that and saying yes, people that that are in an, in a lower income or the people that can't get can't afford childcare should absolutely get help with this. But then we're also looking at families with six figure salaries that are also going to be in the exact same boat and getting the same ten dollar a day daycare. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very true point. Um, I think I think the message is, you know, there are many many families across BC who who need childcare, and there's just not enough spaces right now, which is why it's important to build that system and and have the system be sustainable and accessible to everybody, just like you know school access, you know, going to kindergarten is accessible for everybody. So I think that's the system we need to be moving towards. Will this lead to more spaces? And like you said, there's still some issues when it comes to wages for early childhood educators and for people working in childcare. Do you think that the, the spaces promised and the spaces needed will open up? Yes, I think they will. I, like I said in the beginning, it, it is a process. We do need to be patient. We need to work through the system. Addressing those educator wages is essential. It has to be a priority um, to build that system. All right. Well, Alison, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about the announcement today. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jill. 
Well, if you asked businesses in Metro Vancouver what the biggest challenge facing them right now is, the answer, well, Apparently, the answer is inflation, but there are some other challenges as well, and these are all found in a new report. It was released earlier today by the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, and President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, Bridget Anderson, joins us now to talk a bit more about this. Bridget, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for asking me, Jill. Well, inflation came out on top of the list, certainly some other challenges as well involving the labor force. What did you find in this survey? You know, this is a really challenging time for businesses. We are just coming out of a couple of years around pandemic-related pressures, and now we are hearing from businesses that inflation, and anybody who's been to a grocery store or a gas pump knows inflation is really hitting uh, individuals high, and it's hitting businesses very, very hard as well. But also, the labor challenges are still causing a big problem for businesses and rising costs. And, you know, it's particularly important to note, given how many small and medium businesses operate in British Columbia, BC has more small businesses per capita than any other province. So these are really tough challenges for a lot of these business owners and operators. Did it look at specific businesses or specific industries where they feel that they're being hit perhaps even harder than others? Yeah, and, you know, really right across the board, though, so two-thirds of those uh, surveyed said that inflation is a significant challenge over the next couple of months. But when we look at it breaking down by industry, construction and agriculture forestry are quite concerned about how rising costs are going to infect, uh, impact their businesses. But if you look at, you know, the other side of that coin and really the acute labor shortages or the labor crunch that we're feeling, um, tourism, the accommodation and food industries also really hurting. So if you stand back and look at it from a broad perspective, there's a lot of industries and sectors who are really feeling a lot of these pressures right now. Uh, Because I think there were some retail numbers out earlier today as well, showing a kind of a dip in retail sales, which isn't a huge surprise, I don't think, given the cost. Like you said, anybody knows that going to the grocery store, things are more expensive. Gas is more expensive. So, And did you get a sense then what businesses were thinking as far as the short term or the long term or how to get out of this? That's a great question because short term, uh, we've got about a third of those surveyed say that they're considering increasing their prices of their goods and their services to try and deal with inflation and rising costs. Longer term, then we're talking about you know the labor crunch, and that is a much more challenging situation because there's no easy quick fix. And you know, I know that uh, whether you're speaking to somebody in the tourism industry or you're speaking to somebody, you know, maybe in professional services, it's really hard to find people to come to work right now, and it's uh, it's complex. There's not enough people. Uh, immigration and foreign credentials and reskilling, all of it factors in. So, you know, there is both uh, concerns in the short term around inflation and rising costs and, and in the short and long term around just getting people to come to, uh, to find people to work. And is it places then, because it seems like you, you might make sense trying to find people to come to work, maybe in jobs that are that are lower paying, or if there are more other jobs out there that are that pay more, it would make sense that somebody would, would go for that and try and get that. But it seems like there are even jobs that would traditionally be considered good jobs with benefits and and quite attractive jobs. But even in those industries, it seems like there's a real a real pinch and a real trouble finding people. It's really, really hard. Employers are having a very challenging time recruiting and retaining talent. I think there's about 100,000 job vacancies in BC right now, and that's really across the board. 
And, and I know that we've all been trying to figure out where did all the people go? <laughs> What's happened? How are we going to find people? And as I said, it's complex. You know, uh, certainly immigration, increasing immigration will help. Foreign credentials and really speeding up and simplifying that process will help as well. But we also have to look at reskilling workers and being able to do so in a pretty quick manner. So micro-credentialing, for example, is a great way to get people to get new skills. But it's clear that things have changed from the pandemic, whether it's because people are remote working in other jurisdictions, provinces or countries. uh, There's just not enough people for what employers need right now. And when you say micro-credentialing, can you talk a bit more? Is, I, you know, I'm assuming it, sound, it is what it sounds like and that it wouldn't take you as long to get credentials, but how does that work? Yeah, I'll give you a great example. So uh, at the Board of Trade, we saw uh, an opportunity in the market around ESG training. Um, and so last year, we launched uh, first of its kind uh, creden- micro-credential in North America with partnership at BCIT. And so it's a, it's a short program. It's usually, you know, somewhere maybe around six weeks or so that gives individuals some training in the certain area. And in this particular case, it's ESG fundamentals. And so that gives another sort of badge, if you will, in, in the tool belt for, for, um, for skills. And so there's micro-credentialing is becoming very, very popular at all kinds of post-secondary institutions. And, and all of Vancouver's great post-secondary institutions are looking at how they do it. So it's a quick, easy, bite-sized way for people to get additional skills um, and to be able to keep them working while they're doing it. And would that be working then as well when you say, where did all the people go? And we've been trying to figure that out. And a lot of people that maybe retired a few years earlier than they might have if if there hadn't been a pandemic. But is that a kind of a way to bridge the gap as well for people that might not quite be at that spot to, to go into those jobs, but are available and ready to do it? Absolutely. Um, you know, that's that's one really good example of how micro-credentialing can help um, reskilling or upskilling. Another one is, you know, a lot of us in our jobs, uh, no matter what it is, have noticed that automation is really impacting their jobs or it takes over a part of their roles and responsibilities. So being able to micro-credential, whether it's, you know, through digital skills or what it might be, gives those people an opportunity then to continue on in a job and and to be able to adapt to the kind of digital transformation we've seen in the workplace. Uh, This survey also takes a look at supply chain issues, and we've certainly been talking about that during the pandemic. How does that factor in with how businesses are feeling, including that with inflation and the other challenges? Yeah, if we remember back to last fall and that terrible situation with flooding and, you know, just the supply chains because of that and the pandemic were really quite fractured. And thankfully, you know, this survey is saying that things seem to be improving. So we do seem to be getting um, goods and and products back into the market uh, much more easily than we were a few months ago. However, there are still some concerns because a lot of these um, issues are global and they're going to take some time to work out. But we are seeing things start to ease. And, you know, if you look at the auto industry, um, things are starting to to get a little better as well. And so cars are, more cars are starting to come back on the market. Um, so it's going in the right direction, but we've got a ways to go. And when you talk about businesses saying they are going to have no other choice than in some cases passing those costs along to consumers, uh, what is the concern there or is a concern there? I suppose that consumers, if we're already buying less or trying to spend less, if we can, are going to cut back even further. 
That is exactly the concern. When we look at uh, employers or businesses have little option but to pass on prices, price increases, you know, there's only really one person paying at the end of that line, and that's consumers. And so there is a point where we're concerned that, you know, businesses can't take on extra costs, but neither can consumers. And and I think we're seeing that, you know, especially at the grocery store where food prices are, are rising and quite dramatically, that has an impact on families and individuals to be able to just put food on the table. And so it is a really big concern, but it's also understandable because businesses um, can't continue to absorb uh, additional costs uh, when they're seeing inflation and rising costs impact their bottom line. So did the survey give you any hope or give you any, I know we talked a little bit about the the short-term versus long-term crisis here and what we're dealing with. Did it give you any kind of hope or, or idea on when things will turn around? I'm always hopeful, Jill. Um, I'm optimistic by nature. And I think when I look out in the environment and see that if we're not post-pandemic, we're darn close to being post-pandemic. And that's fantastic news. Um, Being able to see that, you know, the easing of entry restrictions to Canada will be very helpful for the economy right across the board, whether it's conferences or whether it's tourism. You know, I think all businesses and individuals want to get back to more normal operations. And so that gives me a lot of hope. And then understanding it, believe me, I'm no economist, but understanding that there are measures underway to try and tamp down inflation. And I'm hopeful that we'll start to see things ease uh, in the coming months. Uh, You mentioned that too with the, so the removal of the requirement, the vaccine requirement as of September 30th. How big of an impact do you think that will have on things like conferences and having bigger events being held in Vancouver? Well, let me put it into um, maybe instance of context. So in 2020, Vancouver lost $10 billion in the visitor economy. So it is enormous. And when I, I'm talking about the visitor economy, it's conferences, it's you know personal travel, that kind of thing. And so conferences alone, if you just look at the Vancouver Convention Centre alone, it uh, generates about $300 million a year in economic benefits. And, and you've been to conferences and conventions. You know, often these people tag on a few days at the beginning or at the end. They might decide to travel to a different city in the region. And so those economic benefits are, are really quite considerable. And our tourism industry is a huge economic generator for our province. It employs 46,000 people. There's 20,000 businesses. And again, most of these are small and medium businesses. So being able to remove barriers just tells the world that we're open for business and we're welcoming and we can't wait to see you and we're going to make it easy for you to get here. All right. Bridget Anderson, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Jill. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, this story is just, it's heartbreaking. It is puzzling. It is mind-boggling. You name it. And it has to do with something that happened at a small Newfoundland hospital many decades ago and how 53 years later, babies who were switched at birth, well, some answers are now available to the families. And it's an exclusive story in the Globe and Mail and And journalist Lindsay Jones is joining us now. She is the writer of this story. Lindsay, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Sure. Hi, Jill. Thank you. Uh, This is just, uh, again, it's a story of babies that were switched at birth at a small hospital. Can you tell us a little bit about the research you did and how you found out about this story? Sure. Well, the the families found out, they just found out uh, in January of this year, 
And so they found out in a very odd way, which is how some of these cases are now shaking out um, with uh, the popularity of ancestry kits. So ancestry DNA and 23andMe. And so uh, one woman did an ancestry kit that she received from her husband for Christmas. And so in January of, of 22 this year, she got the results back and they showed that she had a full sister living in Halifax and she wasn't related to anyone in her family. And so from there, uh, the, the, the women connected and pieced it together. They eventually did some DNA tests to confirm that the switch had indeed happened and that these there were two these two baby girls born in 1969 had indeed been raised in each other's families and you write about this as well with the comments and and from the the one mother and it takes us right back to that moment when she gave birth in the hospital and and held the baby then the baby was brought back to her and she even thought at the time and even expressed at the time she thought that perhaps there had been a switch yeah so we've um i've heard of a few cases of 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 temporary switches at some of these at small cottage hospitals in newfoundland but yes in in ruth lush's case the baby handed to her she did not think it was the same baby she had handled or um, the day before, and she spoke up and said as much to the nurse at the cottage hospital and was told, no, ma'am, for sure, this is your baby. And she accepted that. I mean, at the time, she's 20 years old. Nurses were in positions of authority, and she took the baby home with her. And so the the, the really chilling thing is that over the years, she often wondered uh, is could my baby be out there? And she she thought for sure that I, I have my biological child. But then there was this gut feeling that she felt this maternal um, instinct every now and then that washed over her, where she thought, you know, what if she's out there? Right. And you write about this as well, that she even she brought this up to her husband. She suggested years ago doing their own test to see and and see if something had there had been a switch. And her family, certainly it didn't sound like they wanted to go down that road at all. That's right. Her her family, uh, they they refused to do a DNA test or sorry, the, the family refused to do a paternity test, which is understandable. I mean, uh, at the time, you know, the, the family thought that this was just a preposterous thing for uh, Ruth Lush to be bringing up. Um, but, you know, she, she was right about her gut feeling all along. So when the one woman did the the ancestry test and did a, the test that so many people are doing now, they've become so popular. Once she realized that she had another sibling, that, that something was up, how did things unfold from there? So once she realized she had another sibling, uh, so the, the, the women got on the phone and talked, first of all, and um, you know, it was very shocking and um, hard to absorb at the time. And eventually, the, um, the, the Ruth Lush's uh, daughters called her, and they, they told her and her husband, Wilfred, over the phone. And, um, 
And then the family, so the, the, the parents just met their biological daughter for the first time in May of this year, which was very emotional. And they're, they're just getting to know each other and form new bonds. And um, it's, you know, it's a huge change in everyone's world. And there's a lot of suffering going on as well. Were you able to find out then, and I know that some of the people that were in the hospital at the time, they have passed on. Others, I know, didn't want to talk about this at all. But were you able to find out more about what happened in the hospital and how the switch was even possible? Sure. So we, um, the families each each got birth records for the um well, Ruth got her own birth records, and the the biological mother on the other side of the family has died, um, and her her records were provided to me by the family. And so, in looking at both of those birth records, uh, it had some of the the names of the people who were dealing with the babies, which um, w- was very interesting to reach out to them. And one woman who worked there at the time, and she did handle both babies at the hospital. She told me about the procedures for identifying babies um, in 1969 when she was there. And babies were supposed to have identity bracelets uh, snapped on them right after they were born in the delivery room. And then they were taken down the hall to the nursery. So babies were kept separate from their mothers at this time. And there they were weighed and washed. And there were bracelets in that room as well in case you know, another one was needed. If, if it came off, it was too tight or too loose. And so that was what was supposed to happen. We don't know, according to the birth records, whether identity bracelets were put on the babies or not. Uh, we just know that, that that was supposed to be in place, um, that those were, um, that, that was, you know, were the rules of the hospital at the time. You write, though, about a couple of other cases where, and again, how these types of cottage hospitals were quite popular at the time, and they were the, the smaller healthcare centers where people could go. But you also write about a couple of other cases where there wasn't a switch, but there may have been in that moms, new moms were given babies. And in a couple of cases, they were uh, a boy or a girl. It was it was a different sex of the child and, and was caught there. But it for me, I was reading that thinking, well, if it, if that happened, it made you wonder how often or did this happen more than once? I think it definitely happened more than once. And it's only because of these uh, these DNA kits that we can now order online and just mail them off that uh, we're finding out about these switches. I think there are probably many more where babies grew up in families and didn't and, and no one knew the difference, the parents nor the children. And, um, you know, just that small sampling in Triton of of people who came up to Ruth and told her stories of temporary mix-ups shows us that this was more widespread than, than, you know, we've been able to know so far in history. Wow. And, and that, I mean, it makes you wonder too, like you say, with so many more people doing these, the genealogy and the ancestry uh, tracking them, that how many people have had that surprise that, that, oh, you have another sibling and that opens up the whole, a whole door to, to a family or to something that happened so many years ago. Of course. I, I think we're, we're going to hear about stories like this a lot more into the future.
As far as this case goes, though, I would imagine, and, and you touch on this as well, uh, from what we can gather from, from your research and your reporting, uh, that it wasn't something criminal. It wasn't something that somebody did on purpose. It seems like, does it seem like it was simply a case of, of pretty big human error? Well, everything is pointing to pretty big human error. I mean, there hasn't been an RCMP investigation into it, so we don't know for sure. But um, in other cases where there has been uh, an RCMP investigation, such as in Manitoba, for instance, they didn't find any criminal wrongdoing. Uh, It was a a situation of lax uh, rule following, um, short, you know, short staff and um, you know, not following protocol and procedures. And um, that was, you know, a state of the time and place in the 60s and 70s. There were not the same checks and balances as there are today. Um, so it does you know, look like that, but we don't have any proof of that. And without a formal review uh, to, to look into that, it's hard to say for certain. All right. Well, Lindsay, it's a fascinating story. And if people want to read the whole story, it's in the Globe and Mail at theglobeandmail.com. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us uh, for talking more about this. I appreciate your time today. Thanks very much. And it's uh, it's the front page story in, in Saturday's Globe and Mail.